baptismos, which means immersion. But you go and look at what various washings means from Leviticus and Numbers, and you find out that it could mean dipping part of your finger and sprinkling, sprinkling blood. It's, it's in that sort of context where sprinkling is clearly acceptable. And then you go to the New Testament and you see what happens on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God is poured down from above. And Jesus says that the baptism of the Spirit that is poured from above is like the baptism that John conducted in the Jordan River. It doesn't say that the Spirit of God had people immersed into the Spirit of God. It says the Spirit of God was poured down. Joel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the prophets, when they predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he would be poured forth. So pouring, sprinkling, when connected with Old Testament purification rites and when connected with the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Spirit of God, and when you understand that Jesus compares that pouring forth of the Spirit with John's baptism, which was a sign of that coming of the Spirit of God, you see that it's not as easy as you may think to say that the word baptize means immerse, that therefore you always have to immerse when it comes to baptism. Not so fast. That, that is an oversimplistic argument, in my opinion. And I, and I don't think that, no pun intended, it holds water. We, we have the history of word usage, and, and, and I use the illustration of, if I'm going to throw this piece of paper away, I and I can drop it in the trash can. And if I do that, I have thrown that piece of paper away. Or I can wad it up and I can shoot it in the wastebasket and I'm throwing it away. The second way is literalistic. I am literalistically throwing it away. The first one, I dropped it in. But no one would say, well, you, you didn't throw that piece of paper away. So that history of throwing something away, dumping something, tossing something to the trash can be used literally or it can be used metaphorically. And indeed, the word baptism is used literally and it is used metaphorically. It is used both ways. Um, so that you can't reduce this to some sort of word search where you get a lexicon down and you look up baptize and then therefore you hold the believer's baptism because baptizo says immerse. It could mean immerse. It could mean sprinkle. Just like when you tell your children to take a bath Maybe you mean by that, get in the shower. Your point is you want them to get clean. The point of baptism is water. It's not the technicality of how it is applied. But if we want to have a discussion about technically how it is applied, you could make probably a better case that the preferable way is sprinkling or pouring because that seems to be the mode of the Spirit. That seems to be the Old Testament purification rites in the Old Testament but we're also not to poo-poo immersion because there were Old Testament immersions. The point is that if the Old Testament had Old Testament, if the Old Testament had purification rites that included washings, bathings, and sprinklings as well, then in God's mind, the actual mode or the way that you apply water when it comes to New Testament baptism is not the most important thing. 
That is not where the argument needs to begin. The argument needs to begin with what is your understanding of the covenant? What is your understanding of the promises of God? What is your understanding of the people of God? Was there a people in the Old Testament and now a people in the New Testament? And these two people are different, so they have different signs and those signs are applied different ways? If that's your position, then what do you do with Galatians where Paul is clear that we are sons of Abraham if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And not to mention that creates all sorts of problems regarding racism. Is there really one race of people that is better than another? Are, are Jews more favored by God than Gentiles? I don't think a person in this room would say that just by virtue of their skin color or by virtue of their ethnicity that they are better or more favored in God's eyes. Not if you read the New Testament. And Paul even making the statement in Romans chapter 2 that not, not all of those who say they're Jews are Jews, not all, all of those who are circumcised physically are, are truly circumcised. You have to be a son of Abraham. Paul is clear about that. That then brought us to speak about membership. So we move from the meaning of baptism, the mode of baptism, number three, to membership. Membership as it relates to baptism, membership as it relates to the covenant. And I've been giving to you over the last couple of weeks 10 lines of reasoning from the Bible that more than suggests the children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. The children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. Let me just review quickly. First of all, we saw first line of evidence, that scripture prophecies always make a special mention of children. Jeremiah 32, Isaiah 59, Ezekiel chapter 37, all prophecies of the new covenant, which include the children of believers in the new covenant, that the promises of salvation are for the children of believers in the new covenant. How can they not be members of the new covenant if the new covenant prophecies about the new covenant include children? It seems obvious. The second line of reasoning was that Scripture demonstrates children of believers, like Father Abraham, if you have an example of a believer like Father Abraham, just as he circumcised his children because they were part of that covenant, so too in the new covenant, uh, you could make the argument that children should be baptized based on the fact that regardless of the administration of The one covenant of grace, whether it's the Davidic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the new covenant, children are always involved. Children are always included. So that's why it's so natural for the prophecies of the new covenant to include promises to children because that was the case in the covenant God made with Abraham. That was true with the Davidic covenant. That was true with the Mosaic covenant. All the covenants. In fact, you have under the Mosaic Covenant um, that, that very important verse in Deuteronomy where it says in verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 103, Psalm 106, really too many passages even to enumerate this morning teach that these promises God makes to the children 
of believing parents are promises that last forever. They don't end with the new covenant. They're true with every covenant in the Old Testament and they're true with the new covenant today. Third, the third line of evidence that says children of believing parents belong to the new covenant and are members is that the new covenant promises a reaffirmation of a good relationship of believing parents with their children. And we, we looked at Luke chapter 1 Verse 17, that John would go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. One of the promises of the new covenant was a a revival of the family. Fathers would repent of their sins. They would be baptized by John, looking forward to the promised Messiah. They would teach their children to look in faith to Christ. They would raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is why you have in the New Testament so many households coming into the church. Whether it's Lydia who welcomed Paul into her household, the Philippian jailer, Cornelius, you have households entering the church because it was a revival of the family. This was a prediction of what's going to happen in the New Covenant. This isn't just going to be a salvation of individuals. There's going to be salvations of entire families households. The fourth line of evidence that children are members of the new covenant is what I said at the beginning in my introduction. I'm not going to spend time on this, although it may be the most important point, and that is that if the new covenant is better than the old covenant, which is what Hebrews, that's the whole point of Hebrews, then how can the new covenant exclude the most precious group of people that were included in the old covenant? If the new covenant is better, how can they exclude children when the old covenant included children? The new covenant is better because the gospel has reached the nations. The new covenant is better because the sign is applied to male and female. But how can we exclude the children of the new covenant if it's a better covenant? That wouldn't make it a better covenant. That would make it a worse covenant. You're going to exclude the most precious group of people? Well, when you study Hebrews, you find out that children had to be part of that new covenant you want to know why because the author of hebrews is warning the church don't fall away don't apostatize don't be like so many israelite children who were physically circumcised but weren't truly saved don't trample the blood of the covenant Who is the author of Hebrews speaking to if he's not speaking to people that are part of the covenant and receive the overflow of the blessings of the covenant and have heard the gospel preached who fall away? He can't be speaking only to to true believers. He has to be speaking, for example, to children and teenagers, second generation Christians, as well as false professors. The fifth line of evidence the children are members of the new covenant, is that Jesus confirms the inclusion of children in the kingdom of the new covenant. For of such belongs these children to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, Luke 18, Matthew 21. And uh, that will be the sermon this morning from Mark chapter 10. Jesus rebukes the disciples for trying to prevent the children from coming to Jesus. And he picks those children up into his arms and he blesses them and he prays for them and he says these children belong to the kingdom i mean jesus explicitly says that the children of these believing parents belong to the kingdom of the new covenant 
Jesus was a preacher of the new covenant, wasn't he? He wasn't a, he wasn't a preacher of the, the old covenant. He wasn't a preacher of the Mosaic covenant. He's a preacher of the new covenant. And he says those children belong. They are members. He accepted them. He embraced them. And he told the disciples to back down because they were trying to prevent the children from coming. That is a strong argument to say that the children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. They are members of the visible church. There's a sixth line of evidence that we looked at, and this one was simple. The Apostle Paul confirms that the children of believers in the new covenant hold a special place. They are sanctified or set apart, right? 1 Corinthians 7.14. Even if you have an un, one unbelieving spouse and only one believing spouse, the children are still sanctified. They're still set apart. They are different than pagan children. Doesn't mean they're automatically Christians, but they are part of a covenantal framework where they have the influence of at least one godly parent where God views them differently than he views pagan children. That's a non-ideal situation. Would you agree? An unbeliever and a believer married together? But if what is unideal, a believer and an unbeliever being married, if their children are accepted by God as different than pagan children, and being blessed in a different way, then what about an ideal family, believer and believer in children, where you have double influence? It seems to me that these children must be members of the new covenant, especially when in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul quotes promises of the old covenant, honor your father and mother that your days on earth will be long. Written to children in the church, children of the new covenant. And the seventh line of evidence was that the language of inclusion of entire families in the new covenant is very strong. All the families of the earth, for example, Acts 3.25, the household uh, baptisms, the, the coming of, of uh, a believing father to the faith or, or a believing mother to the faith and how that whole household was absorbed into the church. They were accepted into the church. It's not like a father was saved and then he went to church by himself or a mother was saved and she went to church by herself. It was the inclusion of, of these children that were part of the visible church. So children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. Here's an eighth reason. There is language used to describe apostates in the new covenant which parallels in principle what happened to apostates in the Old Testament. So uh, a familiar verse for you uh, is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. But let me read verse 18. What is the first word of verse 18? Children. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is John saying? He's saying not everyone who is a member of the visible church is truly a member of Christ's body. Not everyone who, who, who hears the gospel preached, who is a member of the visible church, who was among us, is in the final analysis truly of God. 
if they apostatize, if they walk away, they went out, he says, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They all aren't of us. Not everyone who is a member of the new covenant is a Christian. That's what he's saying. Not everyone who is a member of the church is a Christian. Now, where do we have a parallel from that? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So if you have someone who has heard the gospel, they've received the knowledge of the truth with their mind. Verse 27, or verse 26, but they go on sinning deliberately. In other words, there's, there's no evidence that the Spirit of God is active in their life. There's, there's no evidence they're a, they're a true child of God. He says, a fearful, verse 27, expectation of judgment awaits them, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that faith without works is dead. You will prove you have true faith by your obedience. When you set aside, listen, the law of Moses, the author of Hebrews says, what does the Old Testament say? On the evidence of two or three witnesses, you're an apostate. In the Old Covenant. He's using the Old Covenant as an example, as a paradigm to say there were all sorts of people in the Old Covenant that didn't obey the Mosaic Law. They did not obey the law of God and they proved therefore not to be true believers even if they were circumcised physically. He's making a comparison. That was the paradigm. Now he says, now we're in the New Covenant, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The Son of God has come. You receive the knowledge of the truth that Jesus has come in the flesh. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised again. You know that truth. You've heard that truth. You've heard that gospel. And yet if you apostatize, if you leave the church, if you leave the visible people of God, there's a worse punishment for you than there were the children of Israel who left in the Old Testament. But notice the language he uses to describe this apostasy. He says, They have profaned the blood of what? The covenant. By which he was what? Sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. There was a covenantal connection to these apostates. They were covenantally connected. How else could they trample the blood of the covenant if they weren't part of the covenant? If they weren't members of the covenant? So you have here in Hebrews a whole group of people, apostates, who were members of the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews says their punishment in hell will be worse than the members of the old covenant who were apostates. Very strong language to indicate that children of believing parents are members of the covenant because there's always people in the church who receive the knowledge of the truth, maybe make a profession of that. They, they are part of the covenantal framework and they apostatize. 
Hebrews 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How can we escape judgment? While God bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Six warning passages in Hebrews, all making the point. And here's here's what the point can't be. It can't be that true believers lose their salvation, right? We can agree on that. So he must be speaking about some group of people in the church who are connected covenantally who end up walking away. Covenant breakers. How many children of believing parents walk away from the faith? A lot. A lot. In fact, I don't have a stat on this, but I would say the majority of apostates are children of believing parents. Every now and then you'll have an adult who seems to make a conversion, a profession of faith, and then years later, they walk away. That, that happens. I've seen it in the ministry. But my heart grieves over the children of believing parents because that percentage is far greater who walk away. I think the author of Hebrews is speaking to false professing adults and to children of believers. And he's saying, don't apostatize. So the children of believing parents, I think, are members of the new covenant based upon the warning passages of Hebrews. There has to be some group of people he's speaking about. Why would we assume the children of believers are not included in that? When you have, for example, Paul specifically addressing children in Ephesians 6. He addresses husbands, he addresses wives, he specifically addresses children. There's a ninth line of evidence that more than suggests children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. And that is this. Romans 11 describes, I think, children of believing parents within the new covenant who are cut off from the covenant family tree because they don't possess the fruit of saving faith. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, he's saying Gentile professing believers were engrafted in to the Israel of God. He says, if that is true, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That is the the original. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. A Gentile convert might say that. Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because of their, what? Unbelief. But were they on the tree? Yeah. They were broken off. They were part of the covenant and they were broken off. They were members of the tree. They were members of the family tree. Paul says, yeah, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But then he says this, but you stand fast through faith. Do not be proud, but fear. 
Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, Jewish believers, neither will he spare you, Gentile believers, and your seed. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Perhaps a reformation of, of Jews coming to a saving knowledge. Verse 24, for if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is my tree, God says, my tree of Israel. Who is he removing from the vine? Well, he can't be removing the elect, right? Romans 9 Does the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? One vessel is made for honor, one for dishonor. God says, I choose whom I choose and don't answer back to me why I do what I do. It's none of your business. So he can't now be saying in Romans 11 that the elect of God somehow fall away and are broken off. He's saying there are branches connected to the family tree of the covenant in the new covenant, just like the old covenant that will be broken off. These are apostates. They'll be snapped off. And there is a precious verse, and I just want you to listen to it, and then you can write it down. Just listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. In days to come, speaking about the new covenant, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. It's a prophecy of the new covenant speaking about the time when the Spirit of God is poured forth and Israel is going to blossom, she's going to put forth shoots, she's going to fill the whole world with fruit. This is the family tree of God. If the root is removed, the tree dies. So we need union with Christ to receive life-giving power. But removing dead branches doesn't kill a tree, it actually saves a tree. And God's saying, I'm going to save my people. I'm going to graft in Gentile believers. They're going to be branches. The tree is going to be pruned in order to bear more fruit. Paul is warning new covenant believers, new covenant members in Romans 11, that if they don't bear fruit, they'll be cut off. This is the same thing the author of Hebrews is saying. Faith without works is dead. Same thing James says. And it's similar language to Genesis 17. What did God tell Abraham and his offspring? If you don't obey the covenant, you're going to be cut off. Here God says to new covenant members, you can be cut off. Now, if you're cut off, it's not because you were elect and you lost your salvation. It's because you never really were saved, but you were a member of the covenant. You were a member of the tree. So here's the big question. What was the mechanism employed whereby A later revealed apostate was attached to the tree in the first place. Well, we could say by proxy, they were birthed into the covenant, right? Just like Old Testament Jewish babies were birthed into the covenant. The family tree of God in the new covenant has children birthed by believing parents all the time. 1 Corinthians 7.14, the children are holy. The children are sanctified. The children are set apart. But was there a sign applied to these 
children of believers in the new covenant like there was in the old covenant? That's, that's the question we're, we're trying to answer. See, no one can dispute the fact that there is no such thing as a regenerate church. There are always goats among the sheep. Sometimes those are adults. Sometimes those are children of believers that when they become adults prove that they're really goats. But no one can dispute the fact that the church is composed of unregenerate and regenerate people. Members who are actually snapped off. God views a visible church as one. Now how can he view the visible church as one if he's not including in that professing adult believers as well as children of believers? Could it be that baptism, since it replaces circumcision as a sign, should be applied to the babies of believers. I mean, what, 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 what else is the, the official thing that makes them part of the tree? You can say that because they were birthed by a believer, because their parents were believers, they're automatically part of the tree. And I concede that point. I think that that is the point. But, let's go all the way back to the first lesson. If circumcision was applied to babies in the Old Testament of believers and baptism has replaced circumcision and the covenant promises are the same, then why would you not baptize the children of believers? You should have a good argument. And you say, well, the the New Testament doesn't explicitly command the baptism of the babies of believers. Right, but the New Testament also doesn't explicitly say you shouldn't do that. And the Old Testament has all sorts of precedent and paradigm on the structure of the new covenant. Now let me introduce the tenth line of evidence. I'm going to introduce this and then Lord willing next week we'll go into detail on this one, okay? But this one is very, very critical. We're talking about 10 lines of evidence that more than suggest the children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. That's all we're saying at this point. So really, we've not even made the argument that baptism has to be applied. I just said that if a baby of a believing parent, if there is a baby of a believing parent who is raised in in a church upbringing, a Christian household, they are branches that are part of the family tree. So if you were not baptized as an infant, as I wasn't baptized as an infant, it doesn't overturn Romans 11, I'm still a branch that was connected. And I was a branch connected before I ever made a profession of faith. But, 10th line of evidence. Do you realize that the first sermon of the new covenant that was preached includes salvation promises to children and mentions baptism in the very same way? breath now you could say that's a coincidence I don't know about that go to Acts chapter 2 and we'll elaborate on this next week and kind of tie everything together next week first sermon of the new covenant preached has the inclusion of children this is not hidden You don't have to find this tucked away somewhere in the New Testament and then extrapolate 
some principle from an obscure verse. This is the first sermon of the new covenant. And it mentions the promise of salvation to children and baptism in the very same breath. What happened after Peter preached on Pentecost, verse 37? When they heard this sermon, they were cut to the heart. Interesting language. Is that suggesting that they were circumcised in their hearts? These adults regenerated? I think so, because it says Peter said, and the rest of the apostles, or they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Now these are first generation believers, right? They've been cut to the heart. For argument's sake, let's say they've been regenerated. That leads them to ask, what shall we do? Regeneration comes first, right? Then repentance and faith. So when Peter says repent and have faith, they did it because they were already regenerated. They heard the message preached. They heard the gospel. They heard they were guilty of crucifying their Messiah. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. First generation converts to the gospel. Yes, they were Jews. Yes, they had been physically circumcised, but now they're spiritually circumcised, right? The Spirit of God has quickened their hearts. They've been forgiven of their sins through faith and repentance. So how does salvation occur? How does salvation occur? Through what? Faith and what? It wasn't a trick question. Faith and repentance. Is that how they were saved? It was, right? Faith and repentance. Salvation is always through faith and repentance. But notice verse 39. This promise, what promise? The promise that if you have faith and repentance, this promise of salvation is for you. And what does it say? And for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. The promise of salvation is for you. But what is the sign? What is the sign of this new covenant, salvation? Baptism, back in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. The promise is symbolized in the baptism. Now, if Peter and the other apostles were not saying that children were to be baptized, you would have had a revolt on your hands. Because every Jew there would have heard that as such a natural statement. Oh, Abraham was a first generation believer. I am a first-generation believer, having repented of my sins, had faith in Christ. Obviously, this is for my children. Just as circumcision was for Abraham's children, this baptism is now for my children. Now, they must have faith in Christ and repent of their sins, but a baby can't do that. A child, young infant, can't do that. But Peter says this promise is for you. 
the promise of salvation symbolized in baptism. So that's where the argument begins, really. If the promise is for the children and the sign is baptism, then why aren't the babies baptized? Why aren't the babies included? They are included by Peter. Now, he doesn't explicitly say baptize them, but in two verses, you have the language of salvation and baptism and children all wrapped up in one. How would the original readers understand this passage? They would have understood it's natural that their children be part of the new covenant. That they be members of the new covenant. Now that doesn't mean you have to baptize your children for them to be recipients of the promise. But to borrow Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 12, I will show you still a more excellent way. Because it seems to me to be quite natural A natural reading of Acts 2, it is more than natural and more than reasonable to conclude that these children were baptized. It doesn't prove it conclusively, but with all that we've talked about up to this point, no one would say it's unreasonable. No one would say that it's unnatural. So next week, I will show you still a more excellent way. How should baptism be applied in the church? What is the preferable, most biblically consistent way? And we'll wrap everything up, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures, for truth that comes to us. These are difficult issues to think about, but Father, you've required us to think about them carefully. Help us where we are weak, make us strong, Lord, help us to understand the nature of the covenants. Lord, if nothing else, to understand that children are precious in your eyes. Children of believers are viewed as branches on your family tree. Father, we need to nurture faith within their hearts, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So regardless of our position on baptism, may we believe that and cling to that with all of our hearts. We praise you for your truth. Bless us now as we worship you corporately. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.